Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We are going through these few weeks, what I'm calling the, the, the fine print of discipleship. You know, all the, the little stuff at the bottom of the contracts that you sign that has all the actual details of what it is you're agreeing to. We call Jesus Lord. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Other than we come here on Sunday and we, we sing and we listen and we fellowship and for the next couple of weeks, once Brian comes, we're going to eat as well. But, but what does it mean that we say Jesus is Lord? And so we're, we're looking at these stories about what it means to be his followers. So read along with me. I'm going to read John chapter 11. If you've never been in church before, you probably know this story, or at least you know the end of it. This is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So I'm going to read John chapter 11, verse 1 through verse 45. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there were trying to stone you, and now you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got quickly up and went to him. Now, Jesus hadn't yet entered the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, well, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across its entrance. 
Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So he took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. This story rolls itself out. It takes place in sort of three little acts. It's like a a three-act play. And the first one is Jesus away from Jerusalem. He'd been in Jerusalem before. If you flip back to chapter 10, he's in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 10, verse 31, his Jewish opponents pick up stones to stone him. And in 39, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So verse 40 of chapter 10 said, Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the earlier days. Jesus has been run out of town. He's been run out of Jerusalem, and so he's hanging out up north, far away. And these friends of his, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus gets sick, and Jesus isn't there. They send a messenger to him. They send a message to him saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. And it makes sense that they would call Jesus. This is, we're halfway through John's gospel, and we've seen Jesus heal people left, right, up, and down up until now. He has a well-known reputation as someone who can heal people. In fact, he can heal people standing there. He can just speak to them. He can say the word. We've got stories where he just says, somebody comes to him and says, oh, you know, my son is sick, my servant's sick, and Jesus says, go home, he's fine. In one case, a guy walks a whole day. It's 24 hours later. He gets home and he asks, when, you know, his son's fine. He's like, when did he get sick? Like 10 o'clock yesterday morning. The exact moment Jesus said, your son's fine, go home. We know that he can heal people. He can just say the word. And the, the, the girls send this message to him. And the message is the one you love is sick. Now, you've heard me say this before. Love in English is so broad, it is practically a nonsense word. You can love anything. You would not be surprised to have someone say, oh, I love my children. And you would not be surprised to have someone say, oh, I got a new coffee maker and I just love my coffee maker, right? But if there is a fire and you get the coffee maker instead of the children, wow, people are gonna look at you funny. Even if you say, what, I love them all, the children have legs, the coffee maker doesn't. It just seemed natural that I would save the coffee maker, right? Love the coffee maker, love your kids. Those are totally very different emotions. They don't have a word like that in the language of the Bible. They don't have a word that just means sort of any positive emotion. You can love your coffee maker, you can love your job, you can love your kids, you can love the last movie you saw, you can love your spouse, you can love your country. They don't have that. They have separate words. The word that they use here when they say the one you love is sick is the word for friendship. It's the word for affection. It's the word you may have heard, it's philos, And it's where we get our English ending to a word, file, P-H-I-L-E. We put it on the end of words to say that you really like something. So some of you are audiophiles. You really care about how it sounds, right? Some of you are oinophiles. You really care about wine. You're connoisseurs of wine. Some of you I know are javaphiles because you really care about that first cup of coffee. You love coffee. Whatever it is that, that you're a file, right? Whatever it is that you really care about that's important to you, That's how Jesus felt about Lazarus, they say. 
The one that you love, like, you know, you love that first cup of coffee in the morning, right? That's how Jesus felt about Lazarus. They were friends. He liked Lazarus. He cared about Lazarus. Lazarus was someone who was important to him. Lord, your friend, your good friend, this guy you really care about, he's sick. And then we're told just a couple verses later that Jesus loved Mary and Martha, verse five, and he loved Lazarus. Now that's a different word, love. That's the word, again, you've probably heard if you've hung out in churches, it's the word agape. It's not an emotion. It doesn't mean you like something, it means you're devoted to it. You are unselfishly devoted to this thing, right? Sometimes you might not even like it, right? You've heard people say things like, well, you know, I don't like him, but he's my brother, so I love him. Right? That, that's agape. That's devotion. You're going, he's family, you're going to take care of him, you're going to do what needs to happen. And, and you can't do this in English, but the way John writes it, it's emphatic. It's like, you know, it would be bold and we'd, we'd underline it or something. Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He was devoted to them. He wanted what was best for them. So then do you hear? John has just told us, oh, Jesus liked Lazarus. They were friends. He cared about Lazarus. They were important. He was devoted to Lazarus and his sisters. He wanted what was best for him. Verse six, so, or your Bible might say therefore, because it's, it's, he, John's connecting them. Therefore, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves Mary and Martha. He likes them. He cares about them. They are important to him. So when they are in crisis, he does nothing. He doesn't go. Again, we've seen him heal at a distance. He just has to say the word. He doesn't say, butkus, nothing, nada. He keeps his mouth shut. He doesn't even send word to them. He loves them, it says, and he does nothing. Radio silence. Okay, seriously, how many of you have ever cried out to God in crisis and you got absolutely nothing back? Zero, zilch, nothing happened. John is emphatic that Jesus loves these people. And because he loves them, John says, he did nothing. It gets even worse. Look at verse 14. You know, the disciples and Jesus, if this wasn't so serious, this would be a very funny passage if you're just reading it. Jesus is like, they just left Judea because they were going to be stoned, right? That means in their world, people pulled guns on them. Can you imagine being on Terrell's mission trip? You go to a village and everyone in the villager pulls out a pistol and takes aim at you and you get the heck out of there. And a couple days later, Terrell's like, okay, who's ready to go back to the village? Right? Of course, the disciples are like, um, no, they're trying to kill us. We're not going back there. And Jesus being Jesus, of course, gives them a Jesus answer. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? yes. Death, killing, remember the killing part. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. We must wake him up. Yes, sleep, good. Killing, not answering the killing question. Right? Finally, Jesus comes out plainly. Lazarus is dead. I'm going to raise him. 
Listen to what he says. Lazarus is dead, verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Literally, he says, I rejoice. It is a strong word. And again, you can't do this in English, but it's emphatic the way John writes it. I rejoice that Lazarus is dead. I rejoice that I did not save him because you're going to believe because of this. Jesus does absolutely nothing when they are in crisis. And then he has the gall to say, I am really glad about this. Because Lazarus' death, it's going to bring God glory. It's going to increase God's kingdom. People are going to come into my kingdom and glorify me and my father because of this. And so I am glad. You know, we talk about Jesus saving us. But we kind of talk about it as if he was a lifeguard. Anybody ever lifeguard? I lifeguard one summer for the Boy Scouts. Um, So, you know, I've pulled kids out of the water, right? You know, some kid gets in too deep and he starts struggling and sputtering, whatever. Like, I've pulled kids out of the water, right? And then you set them down and you make sure they're okay and you talk to them and you're like, dude, you need to stay where you can stand, whatever. And that is the sum total of our interaction. I'm his lifeguard. He got in trouble. It's my job. I pulled him out. Now we're good. It's not like they follow me around for the rest of my life. Right? I have a little entourage of people who were eight when I saved them as a 16-year-old that now carry my stuff for me. I saved them, quote unquote. But that was my job. And I, I pulled them out of the water, and then they're fine. I'm sure they probably went back in the water the next day. That's not Jesus. He's not our lifeguard. We weren't drowning in sin, and he pulled us out and set us on the dock and said, whoa, dude, think you got enough water in you there? Okay, come on, breathe, right? And then we go on our merry way. Scripture says we were enslaved. We were part of the kingdom of death. Our ancestors sold themselves into the kingdom of death, and so that's where we were born, It may may not be your fault, right? You had nothing to do with the choices that Adam and whoever else made, but you're born into that kingdom because that's what your great-great-great-grandparents decided. My daughter was born in Singapore because my wife and I went there. Christina had nothing to do with it. She just was stuck with it. She was born in Singapore. She didn't ask for it, and you know what? It's going to be a headache for her later if she ever needs to get a a birth certificate because she can't just call up the hospital in New Jersey like I can and get one mailed to her. But her parents decided, Adam and Eve, our great, 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 whatever parents, when God first made people, God said, look, you can live in my kingdom by my rules, or you can do what you want. But if you do what you want, you need to understand that that will bring death into the world. And they said, yeah, I'll take that, Dorothy, thank you. And that's where we've all been born. We are all born in the kingdom of death. We are slaves to sin, scripture said. And when Jesus saves us, He doesn't save us, put us down on the dock and said, okay, great, go do whatever you want. He takes us into his kingdom. We were in the kingdom of death, now we're in the kingdom of life. But we weren't lords in the kingdom of death and we're not lords in the kingdom of life. Scripture says you were slaves to sin. Now you've been set free, so you're, it ain't lords, (laughs) slaves. So you're slaves to righteousness. Jesus has saved us and we are, we say to him, 
Lord. That's what Mary and Martha say to him. Lord, the one you love is death. Martha, Martha will say it to him later. Lord, don't roll the stone away. That's a bad idea. It's going to smell awful in there. Lord, that's what we say to Jesus. And what that means is he decides. When we call out to him, he decides. Because he's not a genie in the bottle that we pull out, unpop the cork, and he comes out and says, how can I serve you, Lord? Jesus does not call us Lord. He does not call us master. He does not say, what can I do for you? I'm here to serve. That's what we say to him. And that means there are days when we, like Mary and Martha, when we are in crisis and we cry out to him. And he chooses what we do not want. For his purposes, he chooses what we don't want. Why do people leave the church? Because I'm sure we all know folks who have left the church. You know, I don't know anyone who fundamentally, at the very bottom of the issue, left the church because they couldn't figure out where the dinosaurs fit into Genesis chapter 1. And I admit, I can't figure out where the dinosaurs fit in Genesis chapter 1 either. Maybe that shows up later as an issue, but what happens first is God disappoints us. We think we're in some sort of relationship with God where he calls us Lord. And we say to him, okay, you will be my God, therefore you will do what I say. And that's not the way it works, brothers and sisters. That has never been the way it works. That's not the way it worked for Mary and Martha. It's not the way it's ever worked for anyone. We call him Lord. And he says to us, I decide. And so when Mary and Martha are scared out of their gourds because their brother, at least as far as we know in the story, they're unmarried, right? They live in their brother's household. Their brother takes care of them. Legally, they fall under him when their brother is dying and they cry out to Jesus who we know can heal people. He does Nothing. Jesus disappoints Mary and Martha. They both say that to him, right? You know, if you'd been here, (laughs) he wouldn't have died. Jesus disappoints Mary and Martha. Why? What's the last verse I read? Verse 45. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and who had seen what Jesus did believed in him. You are going to meet people in Jesus' kingdom who are there because they were alive in 30 AD and they saw this. You're gonna meet some guy. I don't know what coffee shops look, I think they gotta have coffee shops in heaven, right? I don't know what coffee shops are gonna look like in Jesus' kingdom, but you're gonna sit at a table someday with a guy in a coffee shop and you're gonna swap stories about how you came to know Jesus and he's gonna tell you that he lived in Jerusalem in 30 AD and the brother of one of his wife's best friend died and she dragged him to the funeral. 
And he didn't want to go. And frankly, this girl, I think her, you know, her name was Mary. She was a little weird. And she tended to be kind of on the weepy and emotional side. He didn't really like her. And she lived with her. She's not married. She lived with her sister and her brother. I mean, this whole family seems a little strange, honestly. And he didn't want to go. But they were friends from college. So he went and he was there when this rabbi that everybody talks about, that they'd run out of town recently. I mean, some people say he's Messiah, and some people say he's a whack job. He shows up at the tomb, and he says, literally, out loud, to a man who's been dead for four days, get up and get over here. And the guy came out. And this guy's going to say to you, who else could this be? Who but Yahweh speaks to the dead, and they obey him. There are people in Jesus' kingdom right now because Jesus disappointed Mary and Martha. He didn't do what they asked. They desperately, desperately, we've all prayed these prayers. They desperately wanted Jesus to save their brother and he said no. Actually, he said nothing. He just let Lazarus die. And there are many people, it says, in eternity, who saw him speak to a dead man. And they believed. Oh, all those stories people are talking about this guy, they're all true. That's him. That's the guy. They believed him. Because Jesus let Lazarus die. What does he do? He won't save Lazarus. He won't do what Mary and Martha want. What does he do instead? He goes to meet them. Now, did you notice? He doesn't go to their house. He doesn't apologize. Jesus doesn't show up at Mary and Martha's house and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I couldn't save your brother. There's a lot of other things going on in the world. It's like a tapestry, you know? It's like you're looking at the back of a tapestry, and one day I'll turn it around, and it will make sense to you. He doesn't use any of the analogies we try and use. He doesn't even come to their house. He's outside the village. They have to go to him. Even when Martha goes back and gets, gets her sister, Jesus doesn't follow her back to the house. Jesus comes to them mostly, but they have to go out to meet him. Because what happens? What happens when God disappoints us? What do we say? Fine, the heck with you. The one time I need you, you don't show up. Fine. You stay over there, and I'll stay over here. I was listening to a podcast about a, a woman. It's a podcast about mental health. But, but she said this line that really stuck with me. She said, you know, I, in working with people with mental health issues, I just saw over and over again, isolation kills. And that is as true in our spiritual lives with our relationship with God as it is with each other. We get disappointed with God. We get upset with God. God doesn't do what we so, what is so clearly, obviously, the thing that needs to be done. God doesn't do it. He does nothing. He lets them die. He lets, the, he lets us lose our job. He lets this person walk away, whatever it is. He lets this terrible, terrible thing happen. And let's face it. I mean, we all have stories. God has let some terrible things happen. He lets these terrible things happen. And we say, fine. You stay there, and I'll stay here. We isolate ourselves, and isolation kills our spiritual lives, just like it kills our relationships here. Jesus comes 
mostly to them. And then they have to take the final step and come to him. And do you notice how differently he deals with these two sisters? Even though they both say the same thing to him. What does Martha say to him when she shows up in verse 21? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. What does Mary say in verse 32 when she says up? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. They say exactly the same thing to him. Now, we don't know how they said it, right? Was it an act? If you'd been here, my brother would be alive. Right? We don't know if it was resigned. We know Mary's weeping as she says it. We don't know how they said it, but they say the same thing. And do you see how differently Jesus deals with them? Jesus talks to Martha about theology. Your brother will rise again. Now that is Orthodox Judaism. There will be a resurrection at the end of time and all the just will will raise. And Martha gives the Orthodox Judaism answer, yes, I know, he will rise again with the resurrection in the last day. And then, wow, does Jesus take a hard left turn? Because the good answer to that is yes. I mean, that's what I'll say to you, right? When your mom dies and you're brokenhearted, I'm gonna say to you, we will see her again. We will all be back together again one day. Jesus says, you'll see him again. Martha says, I know. There'll be a resurrection. We'll all be together. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And again, it's emphatic. Underline it, put exclamation points about it. I am the resurrection. And then he says, I am life. People are like, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, yeah. In Judaism, all of life is borrowed from God. God breathes life into Adam. We're all living on borrowed time. Life comes from God. Someone who claims to be life, to be resurrection from the dead, oh, he is absolutely claiming to be Yahweh himself in the flesh. I am the resurrection. I am life. Anyone who believes in me lives. I don't care if they're dead. They live. Death will never hang on to them, ever. And then what does he say to Martha? Do you believe this? Like he just tells her truth straight out. I am life. Every bit of life on this planet comes from me. And your brother's not going to rise because of some theological idea. Your brother's going to rise because of me. Because I am life and I am going to give him life again. Do you believe that? And wow, does she give a good answer. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I believe you're the guy. Yes, I believe everything you said. I believe this is you now in the world. And then she goes home because that's what she needed. She needed to get her head back screwed on straight that Jesus is the uncreated creator, that he is life itself, that what he says is going to happen. And I don't know why he does all the things he does. But he's the guy. She gets that and she goes home. She gets her sister. Her sister comes out, falls at his feet weeping, says the exact same thing. If my brother had been here, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus doesn't talk theology with her, not a single word. Where's your brother? 
And they take him to the tomb, and he and Mary weep. He just sits there with Mary, and he weeps with her. You know, when people look, I mean, we look at them, we're kind of like, uh, <laughs> five minutes from now, he's going to be alive. <laughs> right? What, what's going on? Right? He's weeping with Mary, because that's what Mary needs. Mary doesn't need a theology lecture. She doesn't need to understand that this is the uncreated creator who made the world, who is now walking around, who is life himself, who when he says live, wow, you're going to live, because all he did was blow on Adam and Adam came to life. She doesn't need that. What she needs is for God to weep with her. This hurts. I get it. This hurts me too. To Martha... We get a theology lesson, and to Mary, we just cry. Because that's what Mary needs. Jesus comes to them. If they will take that step and come out to him, he will, he will give them what they need. He will invite them in. If what they need is to get their theology straight, he'll give them theology. If what they need is compassion and, and just come mourn with me, then that's what he will do. He does not stop Lazarus from dying, but he does come and meet with them in the midst of their grief and give them what they need. And verse 37, this is one of the fundamental questions of life. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this guy from dying? Why did he let him die? I mean, this, this is one of those huge questions. How can God be all good and all powerful? Because if he's all good, then he should want to stop suffering. So is it that he just lacks the power? He wants to stop suffering, but he can't? In which case, he's not the God. I mean, maybe he's some minor deity. Or is it the other way around? Is he absolutely capable of stopping suffering? He just doesn't care. He's kind of a jerk. And who's going to worship either of those gods? And countless people throughout the centuries have chucked God because those are the only two options they can see. He's all good but not powerful. He's all powerful but not good. And wow, Scripture says he is all both. He is all powerful and he is all good. And when he does not stop suffering, he has a purpose and a reason for that. Because again, that's our choice. Every parent faces the dilemma. When do you let your children suffer the consequences of their actions? And when do you intervene? And God suffers that dilemma every moment of every day because we chose this world. And God told us we would die when we did it. So every time he intervenes, he takes away our free will. He told us what was going to happen but he intervenes. Now, what, what happens to kids who grow up and their parents rescue them every single time anything happens? They never face the consequences. Nothing ever happens. And what happens to kids where their parents never rescue them and never helps? Like, well, your bed, you sleep in it. I mean, God has that choice every moment of every day. When is he going to intervene and undo what we chose and take away our free will, take away the consequences of our choices, and when is he going to let things happen that we chose? When is he going to let us sin against each other? And I don't know why he makes the choices he makes. But according to scripture, he is absolutely 100% good and absolutely 100% powerful. And so when he disappoints us, 
When things happen that we think, how could you do this? Why? I would never do this. I would never let this happen, ever. There are things God has allowed in the world that still, to this day, I think, I would never treat my children that way. What are you doing? But scripture says over and over again that he is good and he is powerful. And when he disappoints us, when he allows things to happen, he has a plan. Again, you will meet people who are in eternity because Jesus let Lazarus die. Scripture says he has a plan. Scripture says he will meet you. If God has disappointed you, if God has made you mad, if he has not done what you said, if you have these huge looming disappointments out there, amen, brothers and sisters, me too. Hey, look around the room. No believer has a life free of disappointment because we would have to be God. We would have to make all the same choices he makes. All of us have places in our lives where God has disappointed us and life has not turned out like we want. And scripture says, he has a plan to do good with that. And scripture says he will meet you in that if you will come to him. He won't force you. He won't come barging into your house and make you talk to him. But he will wait outside. If you want to come to him, he will meet you. He will give you what you need. He will offer to you. If what you need is theology, he'll teach you theology. If what you need is for him to cry with you, he'll cry with you. He will meet you. <laughs> and then, one day, he will bring your brother back to life. We are all living in these two days. We're all living in this time frame between when they cry out to Jesus and hear nothing and then he does show up and save their brother. We're all in that space somewhere in between because one day he is going to show up. Like he's going to show up when John sees Jesus at the end of time. He can't tell us what he, Jesus looks like because Jesus is on fire. He is a flame. All he can see is this giant sword coming out of his mouth that he's going to use to bring justice. Jesus is The sky is going to split open. He is going to come back. He is, all the dead are going to rise. All the people that we begged and prayed, God, don't let this happen. He's going to resurrect all of them. All the dead come back to life before him. One day, he will return and set all things right. But the day, remember I said it's a three-act play. There's the act when Jesus does nothing. There's the act when Jesus meets the sisters and talks them. And then there's the act when he brings Lazarus back to life. We're in act two. Jesus has disappointed us at times in the past. We're in act two right now where we can choose to go out to him. We can choose to continue to engage with him. We can accuse him. If you'd been here, my brother would be alive. Oh, Martha, your brother will be alive again. I know. I know. One day. No, you don't know. I am life. We live in act two, but brothers and sisters, act three is coming. Nothing you can do or not do will ever stop it. He will return one day and everything will be set right. But at least so far, I haven't seen the sky crack open today. So it doesn't look like it's this morning. We're not in act three quite yet. We're still 
in act two. And in act two, we go out to them. We keep talking to them. We keep engaging with them. We don't isolate ourselves. We don't separate ourselves from them because he's disappointed us. Yes, he has disappointed us, but for a reason. Not because he's capricious, not because he doesn't love us. John's emphatic. He not only loves us, John says, he likes us. He considers us his friends. He'll say that many times in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I call you my friends. I could call you my servants, but I don't. I call you friends. Jesus loves us and Jesus likes us. And one day, Jesus will set all things right. But right now, we all live in act two. And so you just got to keep engaging with him. You got to keep talking to him. Go tell him you think he's a bozo. Go tell him if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. Why did you let this? He can take it. He doesn't reject either of these women when they come to him with their wildly different needs. But that's where we live. So I'm going to pray for us. Some of you, I bet you are, wow, you are in the throes of disappointment. And some of you, I suspect, are doing great, and those are not issues. I'm going to pray for us. Talk to the Lord. Are there any places where you have isolated from him? You know, where you have said, no, I'm not, you, you, you've not done what I wanted, and so the, oh, I can't hurt you. All I can do is get away from you. I'm going to pray for us. See if his spirit has anything to say to you. See if he wants to talk to you about this. See if you need some theology, or, or maybe you, you just need him to cry with you. Maybe you just need him to sit with you. He knows. I mean, he knows what Martha needs. He knows what Mary needs. He, he gives to both of them what it is they need until we get to Act 3, because, oh, Act 3 is coming. You can't stop it. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you. I thank you that act three is coming. I thank you that nothing we can do will stop it. Thank you that, that there is no possible way that you can be prevented from setting all things right. It is ordained. It will happen. John saw some of it. It's coming. I don't know when, but it's coming. Lord, until then, while we live in act two, where you have not done the things that we wanted, you have not healed the people we've asked you to heal. You have not fixed the things we've asked you to fix. You have not stopped the things we've asked you to stop, and you have not made happen the things we've asked you to do. Lord, now in Act 2, where we are disappointed, Holy Spirit, help us to come to you. Help us, move us, push us, just like Martha. You know, Martha hears Jesus is there, and she goes, but Mary doesn't. Mary stays behind. Martha has to go and, and push her. Holy Spirit, push us. Push us to engage, to come back, to be involved with you so that you can do for us what we need. You can tell us the things we need to know. You can comfort us in the ways we need to be comforted. You can reassure us that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe, that you have a plan for all of life, that even when things don't seem to be going right, you are in charge. And one day you will say the word. You only have to speak. The dead obey you. Everything in this universe obeys you when you speak with authority. And one day you will. Lord, help us. Help us. We need your help. We need your encouragement. We need your empowering in our lives to continue to call you Lord, even when you discourage us and disappoint us. 
even when you don't do the things we want you to do, even when the fallenness of the world means that we are terribly sinned against, and you don't always stop it. Lord, be gracious to us. Meet us. Come with us. I pray for my brothers and sisters here now. I pray for anybody who is angry with you, who has isolated themselves from you, who doesn't want anything to do with you, who thinks you're a jerk because you haven't done what they wanted. And I readily confess I have felt that many times. Lord, I pray you would be gracious to us. I pray you would come. Just as you walked all the way, you walked probably for two days to come within a couple minutes of Mary and Martha's house so they could walk out and meet you. Jesus, come close to us so that we can meet with you, so that we can be renewed and encouraged by you, so that we have the strength to continue to call you Lord, continue to obey you, continue to be your disciples until the day when that's not necessary anymore because you have split the sky open and you have returned. And so we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to close this time as we always do. We're going to take communion. And normally we would do that together, but today we're going to do that separately. Uh, So I am going to pray over us, and then when I'm done, there's stations in all four corners. There's gluten-free down here if you need it. Whenever you're ready, if you need to sit and pray for a minute, please go right ahead. Whenever you're ready, get up, go to the stations, get the bread, get the cup, bring it back to your seat. Again, whenever you are ready, take that. Because the point of the bread and the cup are to remind yourself that Jesus loves us. That though he still allows suffering, though he still disappoints us, though he does things we do not understand, he does things that, 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 like, why? How? Although he does not do what we want all the time. Because we still suffer the bread, the cup, his body, his blood. This reminds us of whatever reasons he has for allowing those things. It is never that he doesn't love us. His body, his blood shed for us because he loves us. Take the cup, take the bread. Remind yourself. That's why Jesus said to do it. He said, do this and remember me. Remind yourself that whatever is going on in your life, Jesus loves you more than his own body and his own blood. That with a word, he could have come up off that cross. That nails and rope did not hold him there. He stayed there because he loves us. And he died because he loves us. Remember that. Whatever is going on in your life, it is not happening because God is mad at you. God doesn't love you. God wants to punish or hurt you. Take the bread. Take the cup. Remember that you are loved more than life. And whatever he is allowing to happen, he is allowing for his good purposes. And he will be glorified by it, and you're probably going to meet people in eternity one day because of it. Because that's why he does these things. In a fallen, broken world, oh, he uses the fallenness and the brokenness to bring people to himself. To transfer people out of the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. So pray with me again. I thank you, Jesus. We remember, that's what you told us to do. When we gather, to take this tiny little fragment of a meal, a little cup, a little bit of bread, to take that and remember that you have died for us because you love us, 
that we are in your kingdom. Nothing will ever change that. Nothing we do, nothing we don't do will ever change that. That whatever we may suffer and whatever may happen in this fallen world, it is never because you do not love us. Remind us, Lord, as we sit, just us and you, with the bread and the cup, your body and your blood, remind us of your great love for us. And remind us that you are sovereign and you decide that we call you Lord. And so you decide what is good and what is right. Thank you. Thank you for your kindness. We are so, so grateful. And so we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.